Alice Munro is a 91-year-old Canadian writer who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2013. She has been a very prolific writer of short stories, coming out with a collection almost every four years since she began writing as a young woman. I chose this particular story, which was published in The New Yorker magazine in February of 2012, because my own mother rotated around my father much as one of the central characters, Aunt Dawn, orbits around her husband, Jasper. Not a lot goes on in an Alice Munro short story if you're looking for action. No shootouts, car chases, fistfights, or comeuppance for mean or petty characters. I think of Alice Munro as a painter almost as much as a writer. She gives us a glimpse of a character in the beginning of one of her stories, and it's comparable to an unfinished sketch. As the story develops, the sketch gets clearer and more three-dimensional until, by the end of the story, we truly know who that character is. This story is called Haven. All this happened in the 70s, though in that town and other small towns like it, the 70s were not as we picture them now or as I had known them even in Vancouver. The boys' hair was longer than it had been, but not straggling down their backs, and there didn't seem to be an unusual amount of liberation or defiance in the air. My uncle started off by teasing me about grace, about not saying grace. I was 13 years old, living with him and my aunt for the year that my parents were in Africa. I had never bowed my head over a plate of food in my life. Lord, bless this food to our use and us to thy service, Uncle Jasper said, while I held my fork in midair and refrained from chewing the meat and potatoes that were already in my mouth. Surprised, he said, after for Jesus' sake, amen. He wanted to know if my parents said a different prayer, perhaps at the end of the meal. They don't say anything, I told him. Don't they really, he said. These words were delivered with fake amazement. You don't mean to tell me that. People who don't say the Lord's grace going over to Africa to minister to the heathen? Think of that. In Ghana, where my parents were teaching school, they seemed not to have come across any heathens. Christianity bloomed disconcertingly all around them, even on signs on the backs of buses. My parents are Unitarians, I said, for some reason excluding myself. Uncle Jasper shook his head and asked me to explain the word. Were they not believers in the God of Moses, nor in the God of Abraham? Surely they must be Jews. No? Not Mohammedans, were they? It's mostly that every person has his own idea of God, I said, perhaps more firmly than he'd expected. I had two brothers in college, and it didn't look as though they were going to turn out to be Unitarians. So I was used to intense religious as well as atheistic discussions around the dinner table. But they believe in doing good works and living a good life, I added. A mistake. Not only did an incredulous expression come over my uncle's face, raised eyebrows, marveling nod, but the words just out of my mouth sounded alien even to me, pompous and lacking in conviction. I had not approved of my parents going to Africa. I had objected to being dumped, my word for it, with my aunt and uncle. 
I may even have told them, my long-suffering parents, that their good works were a load of crap. In our house, we were allowed to express ourselves as we liked, though I don't think my parents themselves would ever have spoken of good works or of doing good. My uncle was satisfied for the moment. He said that we'd have to drop the subject as he himself needed to be back at his practice doing his own good works by one o'clock. It was probably then that my aunt picked up her fork and began to eat. She would have waited until the bristling was over. This may have been out of habit rather than out of alarm at my forwardness. She was used to holding back until she was sure that my uncle had said all that he meant to say. Even if I spoke to her directly, she would wait, looking at him to see if he wanted to do the answering. What she did say was always cheerful, and she smiled just as soon as she knew it was okay to smile. So it was hard to think of her as being suppressed. Also hard to think of her as my mother's sister, because she looked so much younger and fresher and tidier, as well as being given to those radiant smiles. My mother would talk right over my father if she had something she really wanted to say, and that was often the case. My brother is even the one who said he was thinking of becoming a Muslim so that he could chastise women, always listened to her as an equal authority. Dawn's life is devoted to her husband, my mother had said with an attempt at neutrality, or more dryly, her life revolves around that man. This was something that was said at the time, and it was not always meant as a disparagement. But I had not seen before a woman of whom it seemed so true as Aunt Dawn. Of course, it would have been quite different, my mother said, if they'd had children. Imagine that, children, getting in Uncle Jasper's way, whining for a corner of their mother's attention, being sick, sulking, messing up the house, wanting food he didn't like. Impossible. The house was his, the choice of menus his, the radio and television programs his. Even if he was at his practice next door or out on a call, things had to be ready for his approval at any moment. The slow realization that came to me was that such a regime could be quite agreeable. Bright sterling spoons and forks, polished dark floors, comforting linen sheets, all this household godliness was presided over by my aunt and arrived at by Bernice, the maid. Bernice cooked from scratch, ironed the dish towels. <clears throat> All the other doctors in town sent their linens to the Chinese laundry, while Bernice and Aunt Dawn herself hung hours out on the clothesline. White from the sun, fresh from the wind, sheets and bandages, all superior and sweet-smelling. Gradually, I became less loyal to my home with its intellectual seriousness and physical disorder. Of course, it took all a woman's energy to keep up such a haven as this. You could not be typing out Unitarian manifestos or running off to Africa. Haven was the word. A woman's most important job is making a haven for her man. Did Aunt Dawn actually say that? I don't think so. She shied away from statements. I probably read it in one of the housekeeping magazines I found in the house, such as would have made my mother puke. 
Uncle Jasper was not just a doctor. He was the doctor. He had been the force behind the building of the town hospital and had resisted its being named for him. He had grown up poor but smart and had taught school until he could afford medical training. He had delivered babies and operated on appendix cases in farmhouse kitchens after driving through snowstorms. Even in the 50s and 60s, such things had happened. He was relied on never to give up, to tackle cases of blood poisoning and pneumonia, and to bring patients out alive in the days when the new drugs had not been heard of. Yet in his office, he seemed so easygoing compared with the way he was at home. As if in the house a constant watch was needed, but in the office no oversight was necessary, though you might have thought that the exact opposite would be the case. The nurse who worked there did not even treat him with any special deference. She stuck her head around the door of the room where he was treating my scrape and said that she was going home early. You'll have to get the phone, Dr. Cassell. Remember, I told you. Mm-hmm, he said. Of course, she was old, maybe over 50, and women of that age could take on a habit of authority. But I couldn't imagine that Aunt Dawn ever would. She seemed fixed in rosy and timorous youth. Early in my stay, when I thought I had the right to wander anywhere, I had gone into my aunt and uncle's bedroom to look at a picture of her on his bedside table. The soft curves and dark wavy hair she had still, but there was an unbecoming red cap covering part of that hair, and she was wearing a purple cape. When I went downstairs, I asked her what that outfit was, and she said, What outfit? Oh, that was my nursing student's get-up. You were a nurse? Oh, no, she laughed, as if that would have been absurd effrontery. I dropped out. Is that how you met Uncle Jasper? Oh, no, he'd been a doctor for years before that. I met him when I had a ruptured appendix. I was staying with a friend, I mean a friend's family up here, and I got really sick, but I didn't know what it was. He diagnosed it and took it out. At this, she blushed rather more than usual and said that perhaps I should not go into the bedroom unless I asked permission. Even I could understand that this meant never. So is your friend still here? Oh, you know, you don't have friends in the same way once you get married. About the time I nosed out these facts, I also discovered that Uncle Jasper was not altogether without family, as I had supposed. He had a sister. She, too, had been successful in the world, at least to my way of thinking. She was a musician, a violinist. Her name was Mona, or that was the name she went by, though her proper baptized name was Maud. Mona Cassell. My first knowledge of her existence came when I had lived in the town for about half the school year. When I was walking home from school one day, I saw a poster in the window of the newspaper office advertising a concert that was to be given at the town hall in a couple of weeks' time. Three musicians from Toronto, Mona Cassell was the tall, white-haired lady with a violin, when I got home, I told Aunt Dawn about the coincidence of names, and she said, Oh, yes, that would be your uncle's sister. Then she said, Just don't mention anything about it around here. After a moment, she seemed to feel obliged to say more. 
Your uncle doesn't go for that kind of music, you know, symphony music. And then more. She said that the sister was a few years older than Uncle Jasper and that something had happened when they were young. Some relatives had thought that this girl should be taken away and given a better chance because she was so musical. So she was brought up in a different way, and the brother and sister had nothing in common. And that was really all that she, Aunt Dawn, knew about it, except that my uncle would not like it that she had told me even that much. He doesn't like that music, I said. What kind of music does he like? Sort of more old-fashioned, you could say. Definitely not classical, though. The Beatles? Oh, goodness. Not Lawrence Welk? It's not up to us to discuss this, is it? I shouldn't have got going on it. I disregarded her. So what do you like? I like pretty much anything. You must like some things better than other things. She wouldn't grant more than one of her little laughs. This was the nervous laugh similar to, but more concerned than, for example, the laugh with which she asked Uncle Jasper how he liked his supper. He nearly always gave approval, but with qualifications. All right, but a bit too spicy or a bit too bland, perhaps a little over or possibly undercooked. Once he said, I didn't, and refused to elaborate, and the laugh vanished into her tight lips and heroic self-control. What could that dinner have been? I want to say curry, but maybe that's because my father didn't like curry, though he didn't make a fuss about it. My uncle got up and made himself a peanut butter sandwich, and the emphasis he put into this did amount to making a fuss. Whatever Aunt Dawn had served, it wouldn't have been a deliberate provocation. Maybe just something slightly unusual that had looked good in a magazine. And as I recall, he had eaten it all before pronouncing his verdict. So he was propelled not by hunger, but by the need to make a statement of pure and mighty disapproval. It occurs to me now that something might have gone wrong at the hospital that day. Somebody might have died who wasn't supposed to. Perhaps the problem wasn't with food at all. But I don't think it occurred to Aunt Dawn, or even if it did, she didn't let her suspicion show. She was all contrition. At the time, Aunt Dawn had another problem, a problem that I wouldn't understand until later. She had the problem of the couple next door. They had moved in about the same time as I had. He was the county school inspector, she a music teacher. They were perhaps the same age as Aunt Dawn, younger than Uncle Jasper. They had no children either, which left them free for sociability, and they were at that stage of taking on a new community where every prospect looks bright and easy. In this spirit, they had asked Aunt Dawn and Uncle Jasper around for drinks. The social life of my aunt and uncle was so restricted and so well known around town to be restricted that my aunt had no practice in saying no. And so they found themselves visiting, having drinks and chatting, and I can imagine that Uncle Jasper warmed to the occasion, though without forgiving my aunt's blunder in having accepted the invitation. Now she was in a quandary. She understood that when people had invited you to their house and you had gone, you were supposed to ask them back.
Drinks for drinks, coffee for coffee. No need for a meal. But even what little was required, she did not know how to do. My uncle had found no fault with the neighbors. He simply did not like having people in his house on any account. Then with the news I had brought her came the possibility of a solution to the problem. The trio from Toronto, including, of course, Mona, was performing at the town hall on one evening only. And it so happened that that was the very evening when Uncle Jasper had to be out of the house and had to stay out fairly late. It was the night of the county physician's annual general meeting and dinner, not a banquet. Wives were not invited. The neighbors were planning to attend the concert. They would have had to, given her profession. But they agreed to drop in as soon as it was over for coffee and snacks. And to meet, this was where my aunt overreached herself, to meet the members of the trio, who would also be dropping in for a few moments. I don't know how much my aunt revealed to the neighbors about the relationship with Mona Cassell. If she had any sense, it was nothing, and sense was something she had plenty of most of the time. She did, I'm sure, explain that the doctor could not be present on that evening, but she would never have gone so far as to tell him that the gathering was to be kept secret from him. And what about keeping it secret from Bernice, who went home at supper time and would surely get a whiff of the preparations? I don't know, and most important of all, I don't know how Aunt Dawn got the invitation through to the performers. Had she been in touch with Mona all along? I shouldn't think so. She surely didn't have it in her to deceive my uncle on a long-term basis. I imagine she just got giddy and wrote a note and took it to the hotel where the trio would be staying. She wouldn't have had a Toronto address. Even getting into the hotel... She must have wondered what eyes were on her and prayed that she would get not the manager who knew her husband, but the new young woman who was some sort of foreigner and might not even know that she was the doctor's wife. Why did she take the risk? Why not entertain the neighbors by herself? Hard to say. Maybe she felt unable to carry a conversation by herself. Maybe she wanted to preen a little in front of those neighbors. Maybe, though I can hardly believe this, she wanted to make some slight gesture of friendship or acceptance towards the sister-in-law whom, as far as I know, she had never met. She must have gone around dazed at her own connivance, not to mention with various cross fingers and good luck prayers during those days before when there was a danger of Uncle Jasper's accidentally finding out. Meeting the music teacher on the street, for instance, and having her gush her thanks and expectations all over him. Aunt Dawn has unwittingly set up a collision course between Uncle Jasper and classical music. We'll witness that in the concluding part of Alice Munro's short story, Haven, after a short musical break sponsored by Domenico Scarlatti and executed by Vladimir Horowitz.
The musicians were not so tired after the concert as you might have expected, or so disheartened by the small size of the town hall crowd, which had probably not been a surprise. The enthusiasm of the next-door guests and the warmth of the living room, the town hall had been chilly, as well as the glow of the cherry-colored velvet curtains that were dull maroon in the daytime but looked festive after dark, all these things must have lifted their spirits. The dreariness outside provided a contrast, and the coffee warmed these exotic but weather-beaten strangers, not to mention the sherry that succeeded the coffee. Sherry or port and crystal glasses of the correct shape and size, and also little cakes topped with shredded coconut, diamond or crescent-shaped shortbread, chocolate wafers. I myself had never seen the like. My parents gave the kind of parties where people ate chili out of clay pots. Aunt Dawn wore a dress that was modestly cut made of flesh-colored crepe. It was the sort of dress an older woman might have worn and made look proper in a fussy way, but my aunt could not help looking as if she were taking part in some slightly risque celebration. The neighbor wife, who was also dressed up, a bit more perhaps than the occasion warranted, the short, thick man who played the cello wore a black suit that was saved by a bow tie for making him look like an undertaker, and the pianist, who was his wife, wore a black dress that was too frilly for her wide figure. But Mona Cassell was shining like the moon in a straight-cut gown of some silvery material. She was large-boned with a big nose like her brother's. Aunt Dawn must have had the piano tuned or they wouldn't have stuck with it. The neighbor wife asked for Ein Kleiner Nacht music, and I seconded her, showing off. The fact that I didn't know the music but only the title from studying German at my old city school. Then the neighbor husband asked for something and it was played, and when it was finished, he begged pardon from Aunt Dawn for having been so rude, jumping in with his favorite before the hostess had had a chance to ask for hers. Aunt Dawn said, oh no, not to bother about her. She liked everything. Then she disappeared in a towering blush. I don't know if she cared about the music at all, but it certainly looked as if she were excited about something perhaps just about being personally responsible for these moments, this spread of delight. Could she have forgotten? How could she have forgotten? The meeting of the county physicians, the annual dinner, and the election of officers was normally over by 10.30, and it was now 11 o'clock. Too late. Too late we both noticed the time. The storm door is opening now. Then the door into the front hall, and without the usual pause, there to remove boots and winter coat or scarf, my uncle strides into the living room. The musicians in the middle of a piece do not stop. The neighbors greet my uncle cheerfully, but with voices lowered in deference to the plane. He looks twice his size with his coat unbuttoned and his scarf loose and his boots on. He glares, but not at anybody in particular, not even at his wife. And she isn't looking at him. 
She has begun to gather up the plates on the table beside her, placing them one on top of the other and not even noticing that some still have the little cakes on them which will be squashed to pieces. Without haste and without halting, he walks through the double living room, then through the dining room and the swinging doors into the kitchen. The pianist is sitting with her hands quiet on the keys, and the cello player has stopped. The violinist continues alone. I have no idea, even now, if that was the way the piece was supposed to go, or if she was flouting him on purpose. She never looked up, as far as I can remember, to face this scowling man. Her large white head, similar to his but more weathered, trembles a little but may have been trembling all along. He is back with a plate full of pork and beans. He must have just opened a can and slopped the contents out cold on the plate. He hasn't bothered to take off his winter coat and still without looking at anybody but making a great clatter with his fork, he is eating as if alone and hungry. You might think there had not been a bite of food offered at the annual meeting and dinner. I have never seen him eat like this. His table manners have always been lordly, but decent. The music his sister is playing comes to an end, presumably at its own proper time. It's a little ahead of the pork and beans. The neighbors have got themselves into the front hall and wrapped themselves in their outdoor clothes and stuck their heads in once to express their profuse thanks in the middle of their desperation to be out of there. And now the musicians are leaving, though not in quite such a hurry. Instruments have to be properly packed up after all. You don't just thrust them into their cases. The musicians manage things in what must be their usual way methodically, and then they too disappear. I can't remember anything that was said or whether Aunt Dawn pulled herself together enough to thank them or follow them to the door. I can't pay attention to them because Uncle Jasper has taken to talking in a very loud voice and the person he's talking to is me. I think I remember the violinist taking one look at him just as he begins to talk, a look that he completely ignores or maybe doesn't even see. It's not an angry look, as you might expect, or even an amazed one. She is just terribly tired and her face whiter, perhaps, than any you could imagine. Now tell me, my uncle is saying, addressing me as if nobody else were there. Tell me, do your parents go in for this sort of thing? What I mean is this kind of music, concerts and the like. They ever pay money to sit down for a couple of hours and wear their bottoms out listening to something they wouldn't recognize half a day later? Pay money simply to perpetuate a fraud? You ever know them to do that? I said no, and it was the truth. I had never known them to go to a concert, though they were in favor of concerts in general. See, they've got too much sense, your parents. Too much sense to join all these people who are fussing and clapping and carrying on like it's just the wonder of the world. You know the kind of people I mean. They're lying. A load of horsemen who are all in the hope of appearing high class or more likely giving in to their wives' hope to appear high class. Remember that when you get out in the world, okay? I agreed to remember. I was not really surprised by what he was saying. 
A lot of people thought that way, especially men. There was a quantity of things that men hated or had no use for, as they said, and that was exactly right. They had no use for it, so they hated it. Maybe it was the same way I felt about algebra. I doubted very much that I would ever find any use for it. But I didn't go so far as to want it wiped off the face of the earth for that reason. When I came down in the morning, Uncle Jasper had already left the house. Bernice was washing dishes in the kitchen, and Aunt Dawn was putting away the crystal glasses in the china cabinet. A man's home is his castle, she said. When you write to your mother in Ghana, she said, when you write to her, I don't think you should mention, I mean, I wonder if you should mention the little upset we had here last night. When she sees so many real troubles and people starving and that sort of thing, I mean, it would seem pretty trivial and self-centered of us. I understood. I did not bother to say that so far there had been no reports of starvation in Ghana. After our conversation about music, Uncle Jasper's attention to me became more respectful. He listened to my views on socialized health care as if they were my own and not derived from those of my parents. Once he said that it was a pleasure to have an intelligent person to talk to across the table. My aunt said, yes, it was. She had said this only to be agreeable, and when my uncle laughed in a particular way, she turned red. Life was hard for her, but by Valentine's Day she was forgiven, receiving a bloodstone pendant that made her smile and turn aside to shed a few tears of relief, all at the same time. Mona's candlelight pallor, her sharp bones not quite softened by the silver dress, may have been signs of illness. Her death was noted in the local paper that spring, along with a mention of the town hall concert. An obituary from a Toronto paper was reprinted with a brief outline of a career that seemed to have been adequate to support her, if not brilliant. Uncle Jasper expressed surprise not at her death, but at the fact that she was not going to be buried in Toronto. The funeral and internment were to be at the Church of the Hosannas, which was a few miles north of this town out in the country. It had been the family church when Uncle Jasper and Mona Maud were small, and it was Anglican. Uncle Jasper and Aunt Dawn went to the United Church now, as most well-to-do people in town did. United Church people were firm in their faith, but did not think that you had to turn up every Sunday, and did not believe that God objected to your having a drink now and then. Aunt Dawn and I drove there in her car, Uncle Jasper was busy until the last minute. I had never been to a funeral. My parents would not have thought that a child needed to experience such a thing, even though in their circle, as I seem to remember, it was referred to as a celebration of life. Aunt Dawn was not dressed in black, as I'd expected. She was wearing a suit of a soft lilac color and a Persian lamb jacket with a matching Persian lamb pillbox hat. She looked very pretty and seemed to be in good spirits that she could hardly subdue. A thorn had been removed. A thorn had been removed from Uncle Jasper's side, and that could not help but make her happy. Some of my ideas had changed during the time I had been living with my aunt and uncle. 
For instance, I was no longer so uncritical about people like Mona or about Mona herself and her music and her career. I did not believe that she was or had been a freak, but I could understand how some people might think so. It wasn't just her big bones and her big white nose and the violin and the somewhat silly way you had to hold it. It was the music itself and her devotion to it. Devotion to anything, if you were female, could make you ridiculous. I don't mean that I was won over to Uncle Jasper's way of thinking entirely, just that it did not seem so alien to me as it once had. Creeping past my aunt and uncle's closed bedroom door early on a Sunday morning on my way to help myself to one of the cinnamon scones that Aunt Dawn made every Saturday night, I had heard sounds such as I had never heard from my parents or from anyone else, a sort of pleasurable growling and squealing in which there was a complicity and an abandonment that disturbed and darkly undermined me. I wouldn't think many Toronto people would drive way up here, Aunt Dawn said. The Gibsons aren't going to be able to make it even. He's got a meeting and she can't reschedule her students. The Gibsons were the people next door. Their friendship had continued, but in a lower key, one that didn't include visits to each other's houses. A girl at school had said to me, wait till they make you do the last look. I had to look at my grandma and I fainted. I had not heard about the last look, but I figured out what it must be. I decided that I would slit my eyes and just pretend. As long as the church doesn't have that musty smell, Aunt Dawn said, that gets into your uncle's sinuses. No musty smell, no dispiriting damp seeping out of the stone walls and floor. Someone must have got up early in the morning and come to turn the heat on. The pews were almost full. Quite a few of your uncle's patients have made it out here, Aunt Dawn said softly. That's nice. There isn't any other doctor in town they would do this for. The organist was playing a piece I knew quite well. A girl who was a friend of mine in Vancouver had played it for an Easter concert, Yezu, Joy of Man's Desiring. After we had been settled listening for a bit, there was a discreet commotion at the back of the church. I did not turn to look because I had just noticed the dark, polished wooden box sitting crossways just below the altar, the coffin. Some people called it the casket. It was closed. Unless they opened it up at some point, I did not have to worry about the last look. Even so, I pictured Mona inside it, her big bony nose sticking up, her flesh fallen away, her eyes stuck shut. I made myself fix that image uppermost in my mind until I felt strong enough for it not to make me sick. The source of the mild disturbance was coming up the aisle, and it revealed itself to be Uncle Jasper. He did not stop at the pew where Aunt Dawn and I had kept the seat for him. He went right by at a respectful yet business-like pace, and he had somebody with him. The maid, Bernice. She was dressed up, a navy blue suit and a matching hat with a little nest of flowers in it. She wasn't looking at us or at anybody. Her face was flushed and her lips tight. Neither was Aunt Dawn looking at anybody. She had busied herself at this moment with leafing through the hymn book that she had taken out of the pocket of the seat in front of her. Uncle Jasper didn't stop at the coffin. He was leading Bernice to the organ. 
There was a strange, surprise sort of thump in the music, then a drone, a loss, a silence, except for people in the pews shuffling and straining to see what was going on. Now the pianist who had presided at the organ and the cellist were gone. There must have been a side door up there for them to escape through. Uncle Jasper had seated Bernice in the woman's place. As Bernice began to play, my uncle moved forward and made a gesture to the congregation. Rise and sing, this gesture said, and a few people did. Then more, then all. They rustled around in their hymn books, but most of them were able to start singing even before they could find the words. The old rugged cross. Uncle Jasper's job is done. He can come back and occupy the place we've kept for him. Except for one problem. A thing he has not reckoned on. This is an Anglican church. In the United Church that Uncle Jasper is used to, the members of the choir enter through a door behind the pulpit and settle themselves before the minister appears so that they can look out at the congregation in a comfortable here-we-all-are-together sort of way. Then comes the minister, a signal that things can get started. But in the Anglican church, the choir members come up the aisle from the back of the church singing and making a serious but anonymous show of themselves. They lift their eyes from their books only to gaze ahead at the altar, and they appear slightly transformed, removed from their everyday identities, and not quite aware of their relatives or neighbors or anybody else in the congregation. They are coming up the aisle now singing the old rugged cross, just like everybody else. Uncle Jasper must have talked to them before things started. Possibly he made it out to be a favorite of the deceased. The problem is one of space and bodies. With a choir in the aisle, there is no way for Uncle Jasper to get back to our pew. He is stranded. There is one thing to be done and done quickly, so he does it. The choir has not yet reached the very front pew, so he squeezes in there. The people standing with him are surprised, but they make room for him. That is, they make what room they can. By chance, they are heavy people, and he is a broad, though lean man. I will cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it some day for a crown. That is what my uncle sings as heartily as he can in the space he's been given. He cannot turn to face the altar, but has to face outward into the profiles of the moving choir. He can't help looking a little trapped there. Everything has gone okay, but just the same, not quite as he imagined it. Even after the singing is over, he stays in that spot, sitting squeezed in as tightly as he can be with those people. Perhaps he thinks it would be anticlimactic now to get up and walk back down the aisle to join us. Aunt Dawn has not participated in the singing because she never found the right place in the hymn book. It seems that she could not just trail along the way I did. Or perhaps she caught the shadow of disappointment on Uncle Jasper's face before he was even aware of it himself. Or perhaps she realized that for the first time she didn't care. For the life of her, she couldn't care. Let us pray, says the minister. Well, I hope you've enjoyed Alice Munro's short story called Haven. Thanks for listening. This is Joe Weber saying so long from the Voice of the Arts. (laughs) 